Live. Live from... This is the Just End the Suffering Podcast. For the win. Got it! Oh! He broke his head. Follow me. Follow me to freedom. Ready for this. Here's your host, Mike Phillips. What's up, everybody? Welcome to this episode of the Just End the Suffering Podcast. You're New York Sports Talk, long-suffering fan. Your host, Mike Phillips. i got a good show for you today. We're going to get ready for... Some Mets talk on the podcast. The Mets are wrapping up their season. They're not going to the playoffs, but a lot of news around them of late. We're going to be joined by Will Salmon, the athletic, to talk about the big headlines of the Mets, the pending hire of David Stearns, the president of baseball operations, what sort of choices they made at the deadline, how they're going to attack the offseason. That's kind of Will in just a bit. We're also going to get to our week three NFL picks and be joined by John Stanko, Barstool Sports, big Pats fan, Jets-Pats game coming up this week. So we're going to talk about that with Stanko in just a bit. Make sure you lock the end of the show for six two-minute drill. I'm going to go ahead and talk about the finale of Winning Time. Season 2 wrapped up on Sunday. So my thoughts on the season and what we could get if we get a Season 3. And hopefully you guys have been watching along because Jeff Perlman did point out in the podcast, we need watchers if we want to get Season 3. So hopefully you guys checked it out and we can get a Season 3 of this show. If you like what you hear on the Justin the Suffering Podcast, feel free to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, TuneIn, Spotify, Amazon, all the usual suspects. Simply search for Just and the Suffering Your Favorite Podcast platforms and find out what's there. Feel free your feedback and starving as well. We have with the podcast, even better going forward. Check out the YouTube page, Mike Phillips on YouTube. Video versus the conversations with Will Salmon and John Stanker on YouTube. Again, Mike Phillips on YouTube. Without any further ado, let's get to our opening tip. We're going to talk about the Mets year as it was and where we're going to heading into the offseason. That's coming up here right after this. Ready for this? The opening tip. And here we go. All right, opening tip time. It's still hard to believe the Mets season went as far off the rails as it did. Think back one year ago today. The Mets were about to clinch a playoff berth in Milwaukee. They're on their way to 101 wins, won a wild card spot. Buck Schwalter is the manager of the year. Now they're going to be lucky to crack 75 wins. They ripped apart their dual-A structure of the deadline when it was not working. To the credit of the Mets, this appears to be the correct decision. As in for the fact that Max Scherzer is done for the year the Terrace Manger injury, which ironically is the same one that held out Justin Verlander at the start of the year for the Mets. Verlander has merely been good, not great for the Astros here. The Mets got back a lot of good prospects in those trades. They've all been doing well in the minors and what we've been seeing here. Your addition now is a new leader. David Stern is set to become the president of base operations on October 2nd after the regular season ends. Stern's been the great white whale of Steve Cohen, a young baseball executive who's versed in both analytics and the ability to identify undervalued talent. So what the Brewers, with their mid to small market budget, closer to small, they've been regular contenders the entirety of Stern's run. And the budget they have, as I mentioned here, significantly smaller than the one he's going to have with the Mets. Stern's has a lot of choices to make this offseason. Particularly since the Mets have no desire to be as bad as they were in the second half of this year. And we're running out guys like Rafael Ortega, Jonathan Aruz, Danny Mendick getting regular bats. Well, it's correct to assume, and I think it's pretty clear, they're not going to spend the money to win World Series preseason hype expectations next season. There's no reason they can't be clearing that low bar of wildcard contention. This year, the third NL wildcard team, whether it's the Diamondbacks, the Marlins, the Reds, the Giants, probably an 84-win team. The fact the Mets didn't clear that bar is a problem. 
That's something he should definitely be able to do next year. One of the first things that he's going to have to do, David Stearns, is what to do with the manager. Buck Walters signed a three-year deal with the Mets last season. He's entering the last year of his deal now. Buck dropped some hints recently. He might step away from his job. It's creating an opening that Stearns could fill with his longtime match Milwaukee credit council because his deal's up at the end of the year. Council, though, is reportedly mulling a year off after his contract expires with the Brewers. Do you simply, if you're David Stearns, that scenario happens where council is going to take a year off. Do you simply go to Buck and say, hey, Buck, like I want to see what we can do here. Let's play this year out and see if you can turn around or maybe you want to retire after that. Do you start a bridge that year say, maybe Craig Council wants to come then? If Buck wants to go, do you go to Eric Chavez, who's sort of groom as the manager and waiting? Carlos Beltran's back in the organization, could use an opportunity. You find a new guy like a Joe Espada, somebody who's waiting for a job. And remember, David Stearns did not hire Craig Council in Milwaukee. He inherited Craig Council. So it remains to see how he attacks the manager. Then there's Pete Alonzo question. He has one year left on team control before he hits free agency. The smart thing to do is just extend Pete Alonzo, who's the face of this franchise, extremely popular fans, has more for, as many 40 home run seasons as the rest of the franchise has had in its history. Hard sell to pull the high and blue move when you get to New York at David Stearns. Just trade the stars, your first big move here. Bloom, by the way, did not get Eagle Valley on Wookiee Betts deal, and he got scapegoated by the Red Sox, and he's out of a job right now. Do you trust these prospects that the Mets have brought to inherit their jobs? You have one locked in. Francisco Alvarez is the catcher here. Brett Beatty and Mark Vianos did not do a ton this year with Dallas Confident. They're ready to take those jobs out of competition. Ryan Mauricio has shown flashes here offensively since he got called in September, but you have to find a defensive home for him. That's not easy because he's a shortstop, and we know that's how a shortstop the next decade, Francisco Lindor. Then you have the pitching questions. You have just two starts to feel comfortable with in 2024. Kodai Senga, who has been a good evaluation by Billy Epler to become an ace potential type pitcher. Jose Quintana has established himself. Beyond that, not much is here. Tyler McGill, David Peterson have been given plenty of opportunities to prove themselves as rotation mainstays. They really have not. And look like more depth pieces. You need at least three stars in the, in the open market. Getting Edwin Diaz back, which, by the way, was the straw that sort of broke the camel back for the bullpen and started the cycle of doom here. Getting him back will help the bullpen. You figure Brooks Raley's option get picked up. Adam Alvino's got to opt into his option. This year it did show us you need more than three dependable arms to get through a 162-game season. We also don't know how Stearns can operate the big budget. Will he be aggressive on big guys? Be selective? Use his resources to build a deeper roster? There are ways to attack both fronts. We're kind of in a holding pattern until we hear from him in the first week of October. One thing to note here is that a lot of baseball executives love this hire. They feel like that he's going to be the Andrew Freeman type impact for the Mets and the Dodgers after the big budget ownership group hired him away from Tampa in 2014. He built the team to become a perennial juggernaut. They're going to win the NL West again. The only year they didn't, they lost by one game to the Giants and ended up beating them in the division series. Andrew Freeman came with all the hype. He's built a farm system deep in town. He made selective strikes for big players like Mookie Betts on a trade and signing Freddie Freeman. And they have a churning, constant pipeline of minor league guys that are ready to come up. It's either contributors or trade pieces to go get the things you want. So I feel like that's sort of what Stearns could try and do. We'll find out more about the Mets. We're going to talk Will, with Will Salmon from The Athletic here. That's going to come up right after this. Meet the Mets. Meet the Mets. Step right up and greet the Mets. Bring your kiddies, bring your wife. Guaranteed to have the time of your life because the Mets are really sucking the ball. Knocking those home runs over the wall. These 
All right, we are back here on the podcast talking New York Mets baseball as they wrap up the 2023 season and look ahead to what's hopefully a brighter future. Join me today is one of the two beat writers for the Mets on The Athletic. A lot of great coverage from him. Will Salmon is here. Will, how are you? Hey, Mike. Doing really well. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming on here. And obviously, I want to start out by taking a look at if we went back to spring training and seeing the preseason expectations of, oh, they're going to make another deep playoff run. They have to do a laces again, a lot of star started roster. And here we are in September. They're playing out the string. It's crazy. Like, well, what's your reaction to how everything has sort of gone wrong for them this year? At this point, I've been pretty desensitized by it just because it's like, it was a slow burn. Um, you know, we kind of saw it coming maybe as early as May. I think some people would point to the Edwin Diaz injury as something that was like the first domino to fall and it probably and it definitely was but it wasn't really until may or i guess like yeah first couple of weeks of may where you said to yourself okay like maybe this team has some things to work out maybe they won't be quite as good as we thought that they could be and also like they were dealing with a couple of other injuries of course as well you know by then uh Berlander had returned but he had already missed a month and Jose Quintana was already out, and we were we were already seeing maybe not the effects of it, but certainly the concern of hey, like none of these starting pitchers are going like beyond the fifth inning if they're even getting to the fifth inning. And Buck Showalter was uh, tapping kind of the same reliable relievers pretty much all the time because they were in close games, and again, like they weren't getting the length from their starting pitching. So you kind of saw the concern. Um, pop up, even though the results may not have been there because they were fairly solid in April. Uh, but yeah, certainly like by mid-May, you started to question the team a little bit. Then by June, obviously they had a really bad month there, one of their worst probably in franchise history. Um, so like by now you look back and when you take the uh, full-scale view, sure, it's definitely a, a, a shock and surprising because of the preseason expectations this was a team that entered the season with the highest payroll um, not only in the league but in baseball history and clearly a lot of these moves um, maybe they don't look as good in hindsight but really like it wasn't necessarily like the moves that didn't pan out it was just they weren't getting a whole lot of production from guys that they really counted on heading into the season for obvious reasons uh, whether that was Pete, Pete Alonzo in the month of June struggling or Francisco Lindor in the month of, say, I think it was like May struggling. Guys just picked some like opportune times or, um, to just not play up to the standard that they set and like what everybody expects of them. Um, now, of course, like they re- reverted back to their means and what you expect. And it looks as if like, well, you know, the Mets may have had a run in them to honestly advance into the playoffs perhaps, but just at the time, uh, they made the right move in cutting ties and looking ahead to the future because at that point, their playoff odds were not very good. Yeah, for sure here. It does feel like just based on the results of like how things went with some of the guys they dealt away, it feels like they made the correct decision to pivot and try and build for the longer term as opposed to try and make the run at the 84 wins this year. So how do you feel they did with what they got back at the deadline? Pretty strong returns. I think... Uh, you know, uh, Luis Angel Acuna, he will receive the comparisons to his older brother, Ronald. Um, those I don't think are very fair, unfortunately, for him. Um, but he's a pretty good player. Um, he should be a pretty uh, pretty good, above-average player in the major leagues, from what I've 
heard and from what I've seen on video. And then for Justin Verlander, I think they got two, again, above average prospects that, you know, for a 40 year old pitcher, even though he was Justin Verlander and the fact that they had to eat so much money, um, you would hope that they got a pretty solid return for him. But at the same time, as you alluded to, like these guys are not what they were, you know, a year or two ago, even. Um, they're, they're, they're just, not quite as sharp. And obviously in the case of Max Scherzer, he's not even going to finish the year healthy with the Rangers. Um, so yeah, I think they, they worked out the, all the uh, trades uh, from a prospect view. seems like they're pretty good returns. The only one that I would kind of question a little bit was the uh, Mark Canna for Justin Jarvis trade with the Brewers. Um, and I only say that because um, it doesn't look like Justin Jarvis has pitched well so far. Um, for the Mets and their farm system, that could change. Um, but also to give the Mets some uh, benefit of the doubt there, um, Mark Hanna had not been a regular anymore. And so at that point, it's a little bit hard to, to fetch a good return when you're trading somebody who is on the bench of a losing team. Um, so the fact that they got uh, a pitcher that they could roll the dice on, I understand it. Um, so yeah, I, I like all the returns. I think, um, like I said earlier, it was the right move to do, like you said as well. Um, it's just unfortunate when you look at the season and the way things have played out uh, that they had to resort to that. Yeah, for sure. Sure, I think the big positive of the season it seems like is that for Steve Collins that he finally got his president of baseball operations. David Stern is coming here, and it's like a bit of a homecoming as well, considering he came up his first out in baseball as an intern under the Wilpon era Mets. So, like, what do you think about David Stearns and what he's going to bring to this organization? Yeah, it's pretty much a home run hire, and it's one, frankly, that Steve Cohen had to make. There wasn't really an obvious second selection there or second second guy it was david stearns or you said to yourself oh you know like maybe they're not gonna going to uh going to get the guy that they want or the kind of guy that they want after all uh but yeah david should help the organization in a major way particularly with just the way that he controls a 40-man roster and manages a 40-man roster he tends to get the most and maximize that group um, he's been really good over the years of just unearthing these hidden gems that, uh, like a DJ Stewart, for example, um, he obviously didn't have anything to do with that one, but that's an example of a guy who you don't really expect a whole lot from that really pans out. And David has a really strong track record of doing that with Milwaukee Brewers. And, you know, you need help on the margins, even when you have a bunch of superstars like the Mets did. Yeah, that's for sure here. I know it's a great article on The Athletic today about, I will. I don't know if it was you or Tim. Or, uh, Tim wrote this about some of Stearns' great pickups here. So I'm going to link to that in the show notes here. And one of his biggest decisions got to make here is the Buck Showalter situation because I know Buck's hinted in recent days that you know I'll, I don't know if my future's going to hold. I might step away. I'm not sure yet. So if Buck does decide to stick around, like, do you, do you think there's a chance he leaves? And if so, like, what kind of manager are they looking for? A potential replacement. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know for sure, like, what uh, what Buck will decide or what the Mets will decide, frankly. Like, all we really know is that he has the one-year left remaining on his contract. It's a few million dollars, I believe. Again, that's kind of like, for the Mets, I don't want to say chub change, but if there's a team that can really afford to be okay with that kind of move, it's them, uh, certainly. Uh, the funny thing with David Stearns is that he's never had to hire a baseball manager because he inherited... Uh, Craig Council as his manager with the Brewers. So never had to do that. He also never really had to hire a AAA manager either because Rick Sweet is a longtime manager for the uh, Nashville Sounds, the Brewers AAA organization. So 
it's interesting in the sense that like there's no real precedent for like what David would choose to do. Um, just from, I guess from, uh, previous hires that he's made in other areas, areas, he looked for somebody who's pretty collaborative, um, somebody who's a strong leader, um, somebody that could really get through to the clubhouse and I think be a really good, um, in between person for the front office to the clubhouse and like build that bridge to those guys. Like, a lot of people um, sort of speak these days to their managers, but again, there's no precedent. Um, he hasn't had to hire, he never had to hire a manager. So that's the one kind of unknown about him um, when, when he comes over here. Uh, if they do decide to uh, change the manager position and, or fuck decides to move on himself. Yeah, that's for sure. It's an interesting question to watch here. And obviously the one you know that I'm going to have to ask you, and like everybody's going to be asking all the Met beat reporters on Twitter or wherever in the off season is, the Pete Alonso situation. We know they listened to him on the trade deadline. Didn't make come close making a deal. Stern has a big choice to make when he comes in. Do I extend Pete Alonso? Do I listen to offers here and take the Heim Bloom route and try trading my superstar for he hits freeze, he gets stuff back here? Like, where, what's your sense of what the Pete situation would, would look like? Um, it's a little bit different, I would say, than than that, just because with Alonso, like you are uh, dealing with somebody who. Um, he brings a particular skill set to the fold, whereas Betts is more of a guy who could maybe impact the game in several different ways. Um, not to take anything away from Pete defensively. He's made a lot of improvements there, but he just you don't look at him in the same way as you do at Betts because of just the amount of tools that Betts brings. Now, that said, Alonzo brings a, a certainly a plus-plus uh, power tool that few, if anybody, could match in the game these days um, besides like Aaron Judge. Or Otani, uh, the, the power is just, or I guess Matt Olson, who's, who's up over 50 home runs for the Braves. But, you know, those are just a few names, and I don't think there's that many more to the list. Uh, his consistent power, um, just he's the A face of the franchise, along with Francisco Lindor and Brandon Nimmo, a leader for them in the, in the clubhouse. So it would be a tough decision, clearly, to trade the guy. Um, and you want to see like what you can get in return for him. And the, the reason why they would explore it or any team would explore it is because he has that one year left of arbitration where he could be appealing to a bunch of different teams um, for that price, not just like the um, you know high salary or teams that are going to be the top five or top ten in payroll. Um, he would appeal to a whole vast, you know, the whole vast major leagues. And I think that's why there was a report of him uh, of the Mets speaking with the Milwaukee Brewers even for for a trade of Alonso. Um, so it would be a tough decision if it was me. I I would probably lean towards keeping Opsi Alonso just because um, they don't really have a great answer behind him um, at first base and just what the consistency that he brings, the ability to usually improve year to year is pretty impressive. Yeah, that's for sure. Here and speaking of guys who could improve year to year, we have a bunch of prospects at the big league level now. Rizzo Alvarez franchise lock himself in as the catcher next year, but the other three guys, Brett Beatty, Mark Vientos, Ryan Mauricio, like, do you think they've shown enough here to justify, like, having slots on the team next year, or do you think they're going to, Mets are going to try and backstop that with some veteran competition? No, I don't think they've really shown much to, to convince you that they could handle uh, 162 and produce at a high level, but you know, not, not every rookie does do that in their first year. So I, I think that, like, if you go into the season and say, like, it's like an opening competition, say, at third base or something like that, it's because of, like, what you believe in them as far as, like, what tools they possess and their potential still because they've yet to showcase uh, the results to go along with it. 
Uh, Mauricio is interesting because he's unlike Vientos and Beatty. It seems like he's really caught fire like immediately and has been able to, you know, have a good couple of weeks right off that. Um, but we're only going to get to see him for, I guess, a total of like, what, three and a half, four weeks. And so it's a, it's a small sample size. And so that makes his situation very interesting as well. Um, the versatility that Mauricio play has should help him. Um, we've only seen him at second base so far. Uh, maybe that changes in the, in the last couple of weeks. Um, but yeah, as far as like their group of prospects, unfortunately for them, um, we haven't seen Mauricio enough. And then Vientos and Beatty just haven't, haven't frankly proven enough um, to really go in there where you're super confident of their ability to um, produce at a high level if given a job. All right, I got two more for you here. I know you're on a tight timetable here. So number one, this is a question more for this season here because obviously Edwin Diaz's mm-hmm. injuries this season was sort of a deflating thing. We've seen him slowly try and rehab to get back. He threw off the mound at City Field the day before we recorded this podcast here. So think there's any shot the Mets let Edwin Diaz pitch before the end of this year? Yeah, I think so. Um, if, if the medical reports suggest that he is okay to pitch, then I think that they will allow him to. That's just a guess on my part um, because he is sort of, it appears he continues to ramp up toward that idea. Um, Then you also like leave him on a positive note to like head into the offseason program with. Um, Not that he necessarily needs that as motivation, but it would be nice, I guess, uh, for that. But then you weigh it up against like, okay, is it going to hurt him in any way? I think if it hurts him and if there's a chance it hurts him in any particular way, they would just say no. Um, So it would have to be a situation where the medicals have all checked out and he's totally fine to do this. And if he's up there with his like pitches and he's up there with like the, his velocity and like what they're allowing him to do, then I I don't really see the downside of him getting on a bound um, for an outing or two uh, to close out the season. All right, that's definitely something interesting to keep an eye on here. And the last question here is obviously we've got a lot of conflicting reports about how the Mets were attacked the offseason. Max Scherzer obviously told your colleague at the Athletic, Ken Rosenthal, the Mets are going to reload for, for 25 and 26. We've had uh, Steve Cohen say they wait for Renable. Bill Epler say we're going to be competitive. So we don't know what David Stearns thinks here. So what's your general gut about how they're going to try and attack this offseason? They have a lot of holes. They want to try and be a competitive team next year. Yeah, I just don't see Steve Cohen, um, the way that he's operated, sort of like doing anything other than putting money toward the Mets to be a good team. I just don't see any other path where, based on his history, his short history as owner, he has never not done that. So it's hard to really imagine that they're just going to sit on their hands. I don't think that that's one of the options at all. Um, I would expect them to be in the conversation for Otani. Um, do they land him? I have no idea. Um, and then after that, like there's a pretty significant drop off really with like free agents, particularly position players. Um, there's some, there's some pitchers out there that are interesting. Uh, Yamamoto from Japan is a guy to keep an eye on. Um, my thing with the Mets is that I don't suspect them to heavily invest in guys who are kind of past their prime years. Like, uh, guys who are maybe like over, say, 30, 31, 32. I, I don't see that necessarily happening where you pay a bunch of money for that type of player um, like they've done in the past. But for somebody like, say, uh, Yamamoto from Japan who is still in his 20s, that makes a lot of sense because if you're saying like, hey, we want to be really good in 25, 26, 
well, that's the guy that will help you become very good in 25 and 26, even if it means you're stepping a little bit ahead of 24. Um, so I guess in that sense, like in that context, I could see them spending. Um, so yeah, I just don't, uh, the roster still is, is still, yes, there's going to be a lot of hole, a whole, lot of holes, but the lineup is more or less the same from what it was last year. Um, you're going to be counting on Starling Marte, so that's a huge question mark, but more or less, I would expect them to be fairly competitive. It's not very competitive next year. All right. Well, thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. People want to follow you on social media. Keep up with your coverage for The Athletic. How can they do that? Sure. Thanks for having me on, Mike. Um, on Twitter, um, I'm on. I'm, I'm at Will Fadman, W-I-L-L-F-A-M-M-O-N. And like you mentioned, I shared the beat with Tim Britton over at The Athletic. Um, so all of our stuff could be there at theathletic.com. All right. Well, thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you sound right. Thanks for having me. All right. Show me the money. All right, show me the money is here. Week three NFL picks. Join me today to break it all down. Uh, our resident Patriots fan, a barstool uh, sports guy, John Stanko is here. Stanko, welcome back. How are you? Uh, well, you you opened up with resident Patriots fan, and that means I'm dejected, right? I mean, so that's the way I have to feel. Yeah, I mean, it's not familiar territory for you having, starting off a year 0-2. No, it's not. First time since 2001. Uh, we all know what happened in 2001, but this is a different different time, different year, different team. So um, it's been a it's been a weird first two weeks. Um, a lot of people grasping at optimism despite being 0-2. Part of me believes in that, but part of me is like, you are where your record is, and we haven't won yet, and we don't have any easy games coming up either. So it's it's tough to be a New England fan right now, and that sounds incredibly pointy of me to say. Yeah, it's like, yeah, boy, you know, like, I've been winning for so much, it's hard to actually feed me on the common folk. It's it's hard to just be in one possession games with a chance to win every time. There are some teams who would kill for that, yeah. um, but uh, unfortunately, we're sitting 0-2. Yeah, I mean, I watched the uh, game on Sunday night. I was locked into that one. Obviously, the Jets guy, AFC's games were important to me. I keep an eye on this one. Like, what was your big takeaway from that game? I mean, the big takeaway is the defense is good. Like, I listen, the first two weeks you play the Eagles and the Dolphins, two of theoretically the highest thing, highest octane offenses in the NFL. Um, and the defense held their own. They did their job. You held the Miami, what, to 24 points? Like, th- that's not much more you can ask for. You held T- Tyreek Hill in check. You held Jalen Waddle in check. You asked them to beat you with the run game, and they did. Credit to Mike McDaniels and the Dolphins. But the defense is doing their job. It's the offense. While it looks better this year than years past, Mike, there's still no explosiveness. I think I saw a stat today from Warren Sharp. Mac Jones is still is one for 11 this year on passes of 20 or more yards down the field. There's still not a lot of excitement to be happening and a lot of screen passes. And the thing about screen passes is secondaries need to respect your deep ball in order for screen passes to work. When you got safeties playing 10 yards off the line of scrimmage, it's hard to get any separation for your little slot receivers and speedy guys to create room off the line. And things are tough right now on the offense. So they got to get some, to, some magic work in there. But they're playing the Jets this week. And as you know, Jets defense pretty damn good themselves. Um, so, again, a tough task coming up ahead. But defense is good. Offense, it needs work. And, and I don't know an easy solution to fix it. Yeah, well, I mean, the positive is now you actually have an offensive coordinator calling plays as opposed to whatever the hell last year was. But – I think the, yeah. the, the thing you worry about here is like, obviously you said like you're at a point where you watch teams like this is like a team that, you know, like they're going to be good enough to win some games on their defense and running. They're not going to be good enough to make the playoffs. And what's going to be a very deep conference. So where is the panic meter right now in the Patriots? 
uh, the panic meter is low because expectations weren't that high, right? I mean, I had this team at at optimistically eight or nine wins. As I'm a, as an objective fan, I was like eight or nine wins. We might hover around the wild card. We'll like be in the graphic that they put up on the broadcast, but by week sixteen or seventeen, we'll be out of it. Um, I, I, the thing is, we're we're competitive against the very good teams, but we're not good enough. We don't have enough athleticism. And you can't just develop that over the course of the year. You need to draft that or sign it in free agency or whatnot. And but we should, we're going to beat some teams that uh, that are either uh, more youthful than us, or we're just going to outcoach teams. Um, it, I, someone said to me, I think it might have been Steve said the Patriots are a very untalented team that's very well coached, and that's true, yeah. um, except for the penalties and stuff. But they have the ingenuity like they had on special teams on Sunday night. The offense is starting to cook. They just don't have a lot of talent, and they're trying to get by with a very low baseline. And it's hard to do that when you have teams with such high ceilings and such skilled players uh, like the Eagles and the Dolphins in the first two weeks. So panic meter is not very high because uh, because the the ceiling wasn't very high with the team, right? I think if we lose this week against the Jets, then I'm going to be like, shit, are we going to win like six games this year? Is that what it's going to be like? Um, Then it's going to be really tough because I think our defense should perform well this week, but I also don't know how the hell we're going to score any points. Yeah, for sure. And this game is an important game for both these teams, obviously. Much more for you guys right now because the Patriots are trying to get in the win column here. The Jets are trying to beat the boogeyman and get the, end the 14-game losing streak here. So, like, what do you it's think we have to look forward to? It's 14 games. It's yeah. crazy. It's 14 games. Yeah, I mean, the last one is still the Eric Decker in the end zone overtime 2015. That's the last one. I mean, I remember last year, the second game of the year, I had uh, our friend Steve Colzo over, and we were watching it all with our friends. It was a horrendous football game. 3-3, three to three, going to go to overtime. Awful. And then Marcus Jones with a punt return. And, I mean, it was a great ending for me, but I felt bad for everyone who had to watch it with us because the game was ugly. Yeah. Um, and so and we might have that same thing coming up this Sunday. Yeah, with Jim Nance and Tony Romo on the call for that one, too. Why Why subject them to this, man? Why? There's no reason to. To be fair to the CBS people, I think this is a sign before Aaron Rodgers got hurt. You know what? That's probably fair. That's probably fair. Um, but, I mean, they can switch it up, right? I mean, there's just, just changing travel plans. I mean, come on. It's also a single-header week for CBS. They don't have a 425 game. So they might have said, okay, they're going to send this game out because this is a big rivalry game in the AFC. All right. Well, now you're coming with rational with rational reasons, so I will respect that, Mike. Yes, maybe it does make sense for them to be on the call. Yeah, but I think the thing I'm watching for with this game, and I think it's interesting here, is because obviously – Last week for the Jets, when I'm watching the Dallas game, obviously this Dallas defense is like otherworldly compared to what we've seen from like the rest of the league. I mean, you know, they did the Giants week one. The Jets were hanging with them for a half, and then they just couldn't get all the field on offense, and that has their own issue. But I think with this game, I think the interesting thing is here, the defense is good for New England, not nearly as good as Dallas is. So you wonder here, like, is Zach Wilson confident enough to make plays against Belichick? And Belichick fooled him twice last year. So we'll see, like, I think if Zach will make a play or two, I think it's going to be a big difference because that, that was what would have helped the Jets last year. Yeah, for sure. I think the one thing, though, is the Patriots are fantastic. They have a good pass rush. I want to say fantastic. They have a good pass rush, and they have a very good secondary. Um, and we saw them. We saw the secondary do its job against Miami. They held them in check. And, I mean, Miami has a better passing attack than the New York Jets. That's not breaking news there. So I wouldn't be surprised to see the Patriots deploy something similar to like they did on Sunday night against Garrett Wilson. Make sure he doesn't kill you and then force Zach Wilson to make smart decisions, get rid of the ball fast and find the open receivers quickly off the line. Zach Wilson, I wouldn't say that's his specialty is reading a defense, making a good first read and getting the ball out quickly. That's not something he's he's excelled with before. So they're going to try and force him into mistakes and the Patriots have to play mistake free football. 
which they haven't. They have four turnovers through two games. They've committed, I think, 12 penalties. It's not very, they're not being disciplined in that front either. The Patriots can't afford to make any mistakes, and they have to try and force Zach Wilson to make at least one or two. And it'd be great if we can get some sacks on them as well. But both offensive lines are great. So maybe both teams will just take a wash on that. Yeah, I feel like this game has like 14-10 written all over it. Yeah, I mean, the over-under last I saw was 37. Um, I mean, I think for Steve, that's the lock of the century is to take the under. I'm not I'm not entirely sure. I think the plays, I think the scoring plays are going to be um, – are going to kind of come out of nowhere. I think they're going to be long and explosive plays because they're going to have very compact defenses. And if somebody gets behind the last layer of the secondary, it may be like a 50-yard pass as a scoring play or a slant route that goes 70 yards, a.k.a. Pickens on Monday night because everyone is just compressed in trying to stop the run and keep everything in front of them. So it's going to be – I think it's going to be something like that where a few explosive plays is going to be the, going to be the deciding factor. Or with the Garrett Wilson play against the Cowboys the first half, that kind of play. Right. It, it, it is what it, it's – it's not going to be a pretty football game, and if it's the if it's the one o'clock slate on CBS where Jim Nance and Tony Romo are going to be on it, the majority of America is going to see it, and that's unfortunate for them. Um, I mean, they got a taste of what Monday night was like with some ugly football. This Thursday night's not much better with San Francisco and the Giants, Giants without Barkley, and then you got one o'clock uh, Patriots Jets also with the the primetime crew there. So yikes to the NFL in terms of four straight primetime matchups. Not not very good, but. We'll get to the reason why you're here, which is the picks of the week. Uh, our friend Troy Moriello was on the horn last week. He did some picks. He went one and two on the week. He took the Texans getting a point and a half. Was the call. That was a lost little pick. They got blown out in the game. He took the Steelers getting with two on Monday night. The defense carried him there. He won that one. He had the Packers laying the one. They ended up losing on the road here. So one and two for Troy last week. Yeah, I mean, listen, I had Houston as well. I can't blame Troy for that. Um, I had Panther. I had New Orleans, so we we pushed because I got them at three. You got the Panthers at three and a half, so good for you. Um, and me and you, Mike, we also – I said Washington might run outright, and they did, so I was with you in Washington as well. Yeah, my, you referenced two of my picks here. I had the Panthers getting the hook on Monday night, three and a half. They covered on the late touchdown, the two-point conversion. Commanders, I said last week with Troy, I think they can win this game outright. They did, so they come back, they win. I was wrong on the Giants. Though the Giants would – take care of this game to go down 20 nothing. They're lucky to win the game outright. It's just an expected to cover. So two and one for the year, four and two overall. I mean, that's not bad. Four and two, you take that. That's profitable thus far. Um, I mean, the Giants, they played six horrendous quarters of football. And then finally, Daniel Jones woke up. Um, I think he had like 30 fantasy points in like the second half against the yeah. Cardinals. Um, crazy. So, well, I mean, they got their work cut out for them on Thursday night though against the 49ers. Yeah, I was lucky I didn't have to play Daniel Jones in fantasy this week. That would have been a problem. That would have been a big problem. I did have to go against up against Saquon Barkley in a league, and uh, didn't turn out as a W for me. Yeah, I, I had, I have the in both my leagues. I had my new king running back ones. They sort of went like zero RBs in one league because I was the way the board fell. Where he mostered on Sunday Night Football had a great game for me. He did. He had that explosive touchdown run too in the fourth quarter. You were probably jumping for joy on that one. Oh yes, I was here. So let's go ahead here. Let's go ahead and do some picks for the podcast. So. As the guest, you can go first here. So where are you going here with pick number one? My first pick is going to be a team that showed out on Sunday after a tough week one loss, and that's the Buffalo Bills going, getting, uh, giving six and a half points. I think the Bills offense will woke up against the Raiders. I think Josh Allen finally took care of the football the way he was supposed to. And guess what? They're playing the Commanders, right? I don't think the Commanders have really played anyone that great thus far because like we said, we thought they could win against Denver outright last week because Denver kind of stinks. So I kind of like the Buffalo Bills. I think they're going to cover by more than a touchdown. I think they might win by two touchdowns, frankly, because the Commanders 
they're not going to be able to keep up. They're a good offense. They have some exciting players, but Josh Allen is going to be able to withstand that pass rush. He can move around enough, and I think they cover the touchdown. Yeah, I mean, getting that six and a half, tremendous value here for the uh, commander Bill line here. I mean, Washington might be most fraudulent 2-0 team in the league because they played Arizona yeah. and they could barely beat them. They go down 21-3 to Denver at the rally all the way back to win that game, and Denver still screwed it up here. I think this is yeah. a chance this is a double-digit win for the Bills. I would, I would agree with you. And it's like the commanders are 2-0 and and everyone's like, are you sure they're 2-0? Are you sure? They're kind of the antithesis of the Patriots who are 0-2, had two competitive close games, and the, the fans are like, are the Patriots good? So they're, they're on two opposite sides of the spectrum, and maybe this week they meet in the middle and they kind of even out. All right, so that's pick number one. Are we going to pick two? Pick two, I'm going to go with another team that's going to absolutely decimate their opponent, and that's the Kansas City Chiefs. They are hosting the Chicago Bears. 12 and a half points of the spread. I might take it if it was freaking 20. Uh, the Bears cannot stop a sit. They cannot stop anything. They are Swiss cheese in almost every single department on the defense. And guess what? Travis Kelsey's back. The, the Chiefs won a tough game last week against the Jaguars, and their offense wasn't totally in sync yet, right? That was a very low scoring game. The over-under was 50 and a half, and I don't, need, I don't even think it got to like 25 or 30. Um, so I think the Chiefs are going to are due for an offensive explosion. You have Travis Kelsey going to practice a whole entire week. They're back at home. And the Bears' offense looks terrible. Justin Fields still can't throw the ball. And he's still, I think he only had three designed rushes last week, which is his best asset. So unless the Bears decide to let him run loose, I don't think they're going to do that because I don't think they're that well coached. So I think the Chiefs absolutely steamroll the Chicago Bears. Yeah, I, I like the pick. I didn't take it because for me, it's a case of like, I want to see the Chiefs do it because they haven't looked great the first two weeks. But you very well are probably on the right side. It's going to be a very big lopsided win. Okay, all right. Yeah, I mean, either way, I think it's going to be double digits. Now, I grant you 12 and a half is a lot. It is a lot of points, but um, I, I think they're going to be able to get it done because I think they need a game where they feel good about themselves. And sorry, 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 Chicago. You're about to be the guinea pig in that test. Yep. So where are you going with your last pick of the week? Last pick of the week. Um, the line has shifted quite a bit due to some <laughs> injury prognosis that's shifting around, but I'm going to go with the Los Angeles Rams. I think you said it was now at two and a half or yeah, two. It's plus two. Uh, it shifted four and a half points in, in the span of a day in the borough news. Yeah, well, guess what? I kind of still like it either way. And guess what? It burrows back and it's back to six, six and a half. I still like it um, because the Rams are pretty good. Matthew Stafford's playing very well. Their offense is moving and the Bengals have not looked good at all. They haven't looked great at all. And you're gonna you're asking Joe Burrow either on a hobbled uh, hobbled calf to go around and run around run away from Aaron Donald. I don't think that's gonna be that great. I mean, what was the stat? I think Joe Burrow has taken like all but five snaps from the shotgun just because he doesn't feel comfortable backing up on that leg yet. It's tough to feel confidence in the Bengals right now. Jamar Chase has not been getting go, and it was T. Higgins who carried them last week. Things are not looking good for the Bengals, and I don't think they're gonna get much better because the Rams are playing quite well. They hung in there with San Francisco enough. To, enough for it to be competitive and so I'm going to go with the Rams here and it kind of feels ugly because the Bengals were a Super Bowl pick for some people and it's like they can't start 0-3 no way Joe Burrow's too good that team is too talented I think they're going to drop to 0-3 so I'm taking this one even though a lot of people aren't going to like it that's why I kind of love it yeah I like the logic of the pick as well obviously right now at plus two is not you but Burrow plays here I feel like if you're a guy who wants to bet that game you just wait till you get the confirmation on Burrow if it moves up again then you just lock it in Right, I would agree, and I think that maybe you wait to see if this line starts to shift back towards Cincinnati toward the end of the week. If you can get it at three, maybe it goes back up to that with people starting to buy the Bengals Kool-Aid. They're not going to start 0-3. Maybe you get that three, which is obviously a key number. So, But either way, I think the Rams, they're feisty. They're a good team right now, and they're probably the second-best team in the NFC West in terms of teams of being consistent over the first two weeks. 
who knows what's going to happen. But right now, Stafford is better than Burrow. Right now, the Rams' offense is better than the Bengals. And I think we're going to go there. So that's why I'm going to pick the Rams. Even though it's kind of slimy, I, I still like it. All right, so Stank on the board now. I'm up now. Pick number one here. I go with a team that beat you guys on Sunday. On Sunday, I'm going to take the Dolphins laying six and a half at home against the Broncos. And this one, I saw the number. I'm like, this doesn't make much sense here. Denver started at home with two games they should have won against the Raiders and the Commanders. Found a way to lose both. They're flying across the country for Miami's home opener. Miami's looked great their first two games. I'm getting them less than a touchdown. This feels too easy. I'm going to take the Dolphins and not risk the stupid and get the six and a half points there. Yeah, I mean, the only worry, I guess, if it's a letdown spot, but I'm with you. This is one of those ones I looked at really, really hard. Um, but I, I, I only worry about a letdown spot. That's all. I still think Miami wins the game, but it might be closer just because they're coming off a high on Sunday night. But I, I agree with you. I looked at this one real hard. All right, let's pick number one. Pick number two. I'm going to take the Lions laying three at home against the Falcons here. I think this is sort of an overreaction to what Detroit did last week where they struggled late against Seattle defensively. Atlanta's coming here 2-0. They beat the Panthers at home. They beat the Packers at home on a last-second field goal. Like, I do not think Atlanta is as good as a 2-0 record is here. I think Detroit's a more talented team. They're at home. They're desperate. They're destined to bounce back after that bad loss here. I think it's a, Atlanta's walked to a buzzsaw here. I think, don't think is that good. I think Detroit's going to go up and down the field on them. Give me the Falcons. I mean, the Lions laying the three there. I don't know if I love this one. I think this game is a toss-up. I think this game is a coin flip. The Falcons have been impressive the first two weeks, and sure, you could say the Packers gave away a game, gave away the game on Sunday, but the Falcons still had to come from behind and take it. So, I, I think this one's a 50-50 matchup because the Lions, their offense has not been cooking the first two weeks. It's been a little bit stop and go, stop and go. Um, and to be fair, in their Week One win against Kansas City, like it, it wasn't the offense that got them the win; it was the defense. So. If this where this game is going to be, I think it's going to be really close. So I'm not going to say I think Atlanta's going to win, but I do think it's a 50-50 toss. All right, that's pick number two here. Pick number three, I'm going to lay the big wood here with the Cowboys laying the 12 in Arizona. I mean, we saw what they did to the Giants. We saw what they did to the Jets. We saw Arizona play two games, and they are not nearly as talented as either the Giants or the Jets here. What confidence do I have that Dallas is going to suddenly play down to their level and lay an egg in this game and lose by or win by less than 10 points? I think this is a two touchdown running away victory for the Cowboys or assist steamrolling people right now. So give me Dallas, lay all the wood, uh, pick three. Yeah, over under 10 combined points scored by Arizona in this game. Yeah. I mean, like Micah Parsons might have, might have three sacks right off the bat. James Conner's really the only offensive weapon for the Cardinals that has been consistent over the first two weeks. And he's been very, very good, don't get me wrong. Uh, but again, I agree with you. This Dallas defense, they have speed that it cannot be measured right now. And they are playing absolutely lights out. I do like this pick a lot. All right, so to reset the picks here for week three, Stanko is taking the Bills laying six and a half. He's taking the Chiefs laying 12 and a half. The Chargers plus, I mean, the Rams plus two. Those logos are too similar for the Rams and Chargers. I hate that, but <laughs> my picks. The Dolphins laying six and a half. Lions laying three. Cowboys, Bigwood laying the 12 in Arizona. Those are your picks here for week number three on the podcast. Next week, we're going to be joined by a friend of ours, Martino Puccio, is coming on the picnic. Picks next segment next week to do the podcast. You're going with three favorites this week, Mike. Three favorites. You feel all right about that? I feel pretty good about that. All right. Okay. I usually got to try and sprinkle one one underdog in there somewhere. I took two dogs last week. Uh, you know what? Touche. You're yeah. right. Touche. And they both hit, so I was I will point that out. All right. That's fair. You're in the green there. Yeah. I will also set up as I've been doing throughout the the season on the podcast here. I'm going to set up my knockout pick for the week. I made it through the first two weeks. Uh, 
Okay. I went Baltimore week one. I went Buffalo week two. This week, I I feel there's a lot of options on the board. I'm going Jacksonville this week over Houston at home. Jacksonville over Houston at home. Okay, I can like that pick. Jacksonville needs a bounce back. Their offense was absolute trash uh, against Kansas City. Um, that's another reason I like Kansas City, by the way, against the Bears. Yeah. That defense looked really good last week. Chris Jones was back. You think that the Bears are going to be able to protect Justin Fields against that? Absolutely not. Jaguars couldn't do anything. You think the Bears are? No. Um, for my survivor pick, if I had one, I would pick Kansas City against the Bears. That would that would be mine. Just just advance to week four, survive in advance. Yeah, dude. Um, yeah, did you, so. did you did you not play the pool or did you get knocked out of the pool? No, no, I'm not in one this year. The one that I'm usually part of that's run, the guy took a year off. Credit to him. He's a, he was a machine when doing it, and this year he said he was too tired, so I respect his decision. But uh, if I were to pick one this week, it would be Kansas City. Yeah, I feel like for me, I'm trying to save the Chiefs a little bit because I feel like there's opportunities to get them later in the year. I feel like I'm also going to go off the board here in case something funky happens that game, you know, set myself up for an opportunity to do well. Fair enough. I don't think the Chiefs are as good as they have been in years past. So I'm not I would I would not be as worried about saving them um, as other years prior where you knew they were going to win like 13 games this year. I think they might be an 11 win team, 12 win team, which is still very good. But just you got to survive in advance in this thing. Yeah, I mean, I did I did take like the, the safest pick I feel like this week. I feel like there's a lot of good options this week. So I'm going to take one of my good ones. All right. Fair enough. Just survive in advance, man. Survive in advance. Yep, for sure here. And uh, Stanko, two other things here. Number one, people want to follow on social media, how can I do that? Um, they can follow me on social media at jstanko99 um, on all social media platforms. And uh, I'm continuing to write at stankostance.com. Yeah, absolutely. And why don't get your thoughts here? Because I was obviously following you on social media. And you've been seeing, seeing some interesting stuff of late here. So I want to give the audience an update on some of the stuff you've checked out lately. Uh, well, let's see. You'll be interested to know that I just watched uh, Ant-Man and uh, Quantumania, if you will. Uh, put that on in the train while doing some writing. And Mike, that movie stinks. Oh, um, oh I agree with you. It's garbage. I think I gave this, I think, a D when I watched it. I, I think I gave it that as well. The movie is just, it, it's not good. It's filmed like a Saturday morning cartoon. It's so CGI, it's sickening. Um, it's not funny and it's a stepping stone movie. That's not even that exceptionally well done. So that was incredibly disappointing. Um, my fiance made me watch camp rock recently, which was a movie. Um, I've now seen two Disney channel, uh, original movies, camp rock and a high school musical. Um, and then, uh, in terms of the good one, I just saw, I watched bones and all with Timothy Chalamet, uh, came out last year, kind of horror romantic movie, very weird twist. Um, and I gave myself a great project, Mike. I rewatched the entire Alien franchise, all the Xenomorphs, all the time. Uh, Ripley, for, for she has my heart. I love her as an action hero. I rewatched all the movies and ranked them all. So I just completed that endeavor, and I'm very, very uh, filled out in my sci-fi, uh, my sci-fi queue. So um, those are all up at StankoStance.com. Um, and yeah, I just keep. I just love watching movies, but those are the things I've watched recently that have caught my attention. Yeah, I'll throw in my note on the another note. I think you missed on the uh, Ant Man thing. I want to point out here is that the plot was so thin. This one that we spent half the movie with uh, Michelle Pfeiffer's uh, Janet Van Dyne basically stalling, saying, "I don't want to tell you yet because we had to kill yeah. more time in the movie." Yeah, I mean, you just you're throwing Bill Murray in there for five minutes, and he's not even that funny. And the movie sets up a huge problem too because Jonathan Majors, who was the best part of the movie, with without a doubt by far the best part of the movie we don't know what's going to happen to him he has some serious allegations against him the trial set for october and he's supposed to appear in loki too which is premiering soon which i'm sure you're going to watch and review um it's a very interesting place for marvel because this movie was bad best part of it 
might not be part of the of the Marvel universe going forward, depending on how the litigation falls out. So it, it's interesting. Disney has a pickle uh, with Jonathan Majors and Marvel at this point. Yeah, I think he's the only reason that we didn't get an F for me. Was it was him? Yeah, he was good. He was menacing, and he spoke like a like a poetic bad guy. He spoke slow and eloquently, and it worked. Um, and it was the only thing that did. Yeah. Two other things I'll point out here that are coming up soon I think are, are interesting to you, obviously. Number one, the Continentals dropped its first 90-minute uh, episode on Friday. I'm sure you're excited for that. It, I, it, I am, I am. Um, I know they put, like, the first fight scene out on social media for people to watch. Um, I did not watch it on purpose. I don't want it spoiled for me. I want to watch that um, just in full. I don't want – I saw the last trailer, the massive 70s vibes. Loved it. I don't want to see anything else. I don't I don't want to see any more previews. Just drop me in that world and let me be, let me be happy for it. All right, that's one thing. And number two, I know we didn't talk about this in the fall movie preview a few weeks ago, but, like, the creator apparently I've been on social media is getting a ton of buzz. Yeah, Gareth Edwards' movie. I mean, people seem to love it, uh, whether you're a sci-fi fan or not. It seems to be getting all the praise in the world. Happy to see John David Washington back in, in a good movie. Um, again, the premise of it kind of reminded me of other sci-fi movies with the idea of AI that's relatable and and how do you bring that to humanity and how do you blend it in. But from everything I've read, the movie is incredibly original and it is visually stunning. That's the most that's the part of it I'm really excited about. It's it's a sci-fi world that'll leave you um contemplating about what the future can be. Um and if it's anything like like the last great sci-fi visual movie that I saw is probably Blade Runner 2049 or Dune. Those are two movies visually that just they they punch you in the face, they knock you out, and you kind of have to watch it twice to see everything. Um, and it seems like the creator is kind of following that mold as well. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for all the time. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate it. And, uh, I would wish you good luck on the New York Jets this week, but I am not. Yeah. I did not expect you to. All right. How about good health? We can wish for good health. Yeah. We both need good health, especially my team. <laughs> Fair enough. That's true. Oh, it was a low blow by me. Accidental low blow. <laughs> the two minute drill. All right, two-minute drill time here. We're going to cover the end of Winning Time Season 2, and it turns out the show as a whole, so we're going to break it all down in a second. I want to mention here again, this podcast recorded during the 2023 WGA SAG After Strikes. That the right, labor the writers and the actors who are currently on strike, and hopefully that strike ends soon. The show being covered here, Winning Time, will not exist. So, Winning Time Season 2 takes a very interesting end to it, where the final episode basically covers the entire 1984 NBA Finals in the Lakers and the Celtics. You NBA fans know that the Lakers end up losing that finals here, so that was a deliberate choice by the showrunners. Appears to sort of set this up as the Empire Strikes Back of this show, where they end with the Lakers losing, and then they come back in what was supposed to be season three, where they rise from the ashes, they learn to beat their nemesis, and they go on to have all this glory. We find out here that didn't happen, because at the end of the episode, after we see the great last shot of them losing... Magic Johnson sitting in the shower with the water running down him, just depressed that he lost. We get this bizarre five-day-later epilogue with Jerry Buss and Jeannie Buss in the forum talking about how great everything is, and we get the montage saying, oh, Pat Riley did this, the Lakers did this, and then you realize, oh, they canceled the show. And HBO canceled about 15 seconds after the finale aired. Not great, for sure, here. This season, there were some issues. The pacing was a little weird. I spent a lot of time in 1981, I realized they made a choice to focus on the drama between Magic Johnson and Paul Westhead, the friction that existed there. It took a little too long, I feel like, because we had a seven-episode season, a third of it in 1981. We really missed out on the uh, 
83 season, they skipped it entirely. They went right to them losing the finals. I think there was stuff here that could have been done, but a lot of great character work, especially in the cast here. Jerry Buss's arc was very good. Quincy Isaiah's Maddie Johnson was the star of the season. Solomon Hughes' Kareem Abdul Jabbar had some great moments. We had a great performance from Jason Siegel's Paul Westhead. And we got a lot more basketball in this season here. Especially this last episode with the finals, where we spent a lot of time in here in games, seeing sequences here. The shots you're getting, the choreography from the basketball sequences, the camera work, all excellent stuff here. And it's a bummer this show got canceled because I feel like they had at least one more season in them. There are a lot of good stories still to tell here. I mean, think about this for a second. The show about the 80s Lakers, the rise of that dynasty, ended with the Celtics winning. That makes no sense whatsoever. And it remains to be seen. The viewership is not great. why HBO canceled it. They did not really do much to market it at the time. The writer's strike didn't help, but I felt like they did not do a great job promoting it in the meantime. But I do think there is a chance that this thing gets rescued somewhere because there's been a lot of buzz from people like in the basketball space in the in the world like a lot of well-known people who like this show and been making noise about hey somebody picked this up i know Jeannie bus from the lakers owner was a is a huge fan of the show and she went on the official show podcast to discuss it so that's something to keep an eye on here maybe some buzz maybe you get like a netflix or a prime video or a paramount plus to look at it and say hmm this could fit our profile. Maybe we get this one season to wrap up here when you acquire the library from HBO for the first two seasons. So I think it's a lot of potential here for more. Hopefully someone sees it and picks it up. The social media buzz in this show when I it ended on Sunday, a lot of people are not happy I canceled. So hopefully we get more winning time in the future. With that, I want to end the podcast of the week. I want to thank my guest, Will Salmon, for coming on to talk all about the Mets and where they could be heading and going into next season, as well as John Sanko, who did our week four NFL pick, week three NFL picks, excuse me. Work stuff like this podcast, including my look at what Zach Wilson's situation with the Jets is going to be like, and if they really are going to trust him for the whole year, check out the blog over at justonthesuffering.wordpress.com. Check out the Sky Guys podcast here. You can check out our Soka Part 6 recap. It's going to be coming out tonight on that feed. It's not going to be in here until the weekend, so if you want it as soon as possible, I recommend you subscribe to the Sky Guys podcast. Same platform I mentioned at the top of the show. You can also follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331. And that's going to do it here for the podcast. We'll be back next week. We'll go to the Yankees, see how they wrap up their season. We're going to do some week four picks and more. Until then, have a better week than our good friends, the Vikings fans. Come on and meet the Mets. Meet the Mets. Step right up and greet the Mets. Bring your kiddies, bring your wife. Guaranteed to have the time of your life. Because the Mets are really something the ball. Knocking those home runs over the wall. East side, west side. Everybody's coming down.